Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We have sayings in our culture that sometimes we forget the origin. Maybe some of you like to look up the origin of sayings and certain words to get a better insight into what we're really saying. So the phrase, the writing is on the wall, is usually a phrase we use here to say something bad is going to happen. It's kind of a, an omen of some foreboding doom. Or another phrase, the day, your days are numbered. In fact, both of these phrases come from the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel takes place so long ago that maybe we've forgotten what these phrases really meant in the context of God's story. Your days are numbered. This is actually a phrase that was further used and coined by Marcus Aurelius. The second century Roman Caesar wrote a series of meditations, and in one of them he wrote this phrase, your days are numbered. But by saying so, he wasn't just trying to alert you to your doom or your end. He went on to say that it's an opportunity. He said, your days are numbered. Use them to throw open the windows of your soul to the sun. If you do not, the sun will soon set and you with it. Looking at this story from Daniel chapter 5, we can see the phrase, the writing is on the wall, as a warning to the king and to all of us, and also as an opportunity to open up your soul to the sun, that the sun of God would shine into your hearts to tell you what God wants you to pay attention to. The problem is we don't always pay attention and we might miss these things or we don't prepare ourselves for what God is trying to do and so we're lost and confused, which is exactly where King Belshazzar was. We've come to the point in Daniel's story where King Nebuchadnezzar is gone and dead and a new king has taken the throne, King Belshazzar. He's taken the throne and like his father and grandfather before him, continues to repeat the patterns of pride and arrogance that leave him blind to what the Lord is trying to tell him. He frankly can't read the writing on the wall. It begins with the story of his feast that he's holding basically in honor to himself. It's kind of a, a king's party to celebrate the king and he sits back on his throne. Everybody's coming around him to celebrate how great he is. It's a tradition, especially before war, for kings to have a great banquet of revelry. And this is probably what's happening because at the time, the historical backdrop shows that the kingdom of Babylon was about to fall. And they were threatened on either side from the Persians and the Medes who had teamed up to try to take out the Babylonians who have been a world power for so long. And now, perhaps even on the eve of battle, 
the king holds a great feast in order to call upon the gods. And they'll drink, and they'll invite the women in, and they'll party all night with the gods to celebrate how great the kingdom of Babylon is. But you can understand here how the king doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that the kingdom and its victory and its power are not his. He can't read the writing on the wall. As he's celebrating how great he is, he wants to have a he wants to recall for all the lords and the people under him how his father before him had defeated the Jews. And so he calls for the goblets, the golden and silver vessels of the temple. The temple that Nebuchadnezzar tore down and plundered. And he says, bring out the Jewish fine silverware. And bring out the golden goblets. And let's toast to our kingdom. It's signifying not only how they've plundered the temple, but how they've plundered the people. And how God's people are waiting. And living there being used by the king used and manipulated and abused and oppressed for 70 years, only leading to the king's greater pride in himself. So he desecrates the temple vessels, representing the desecration of God's own people, and he totally disregards any of this that he's doing and celebrates it in honor of his God's the gods of silver and gold and iron. It's in the midst of this evening that a vision appears on the wall. As they're drinking their wine, these fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the writing as it was written, and he became pale. He became nauseated. His knees were knocking together, and he was terrified. Not only because of the vision that was happening in front of him, but because he couldn't read the writing. It says he couldn't read it, he couldn't interpret it, and he invited in all his wise men, the wisest men in his kingdom, the men who knew all languages, all signs and symbols, the astrologers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, but they couldn't read the writing. They couldn't interpret the words. Not only could they not interpret it, but they can't even read what the words say. What does this sign mean? The queen comes forward, perhaps even the queen who was in the kingdom when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, and she reminds the king there is one who can read the writing. There is one named Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, and the spirit of the gods is in him. Light and understanding and excellent wisdom. And so they bring forth Daniel. And the king commands Daniel to tell him the dream, and he offers him a rich bounty, 
a reward to become the third highest ruler in all of Babylon, along with all the riches and fame that would be given to him. But Daniel's not interested in riches or fame. He's probably getting up there in age, and he's seen kings come and he's seen kings go, and he knows that power and riches is fleeting. But he will still read the writing. He will still interpret the message from the Lord. And he says the key to this statement, this writing on the wall, is the context. You'll never understand what the Lord is trying to tell you if you don't look at the context of your life. The context of your history. The context of the story that God is a part of, even though you disregard him. And so he recalls how King Nebuchadnezzar dealt with God. How God intervened in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. First, to give him the power and glory that he had. He says all these kingdoms, all this riches, the significance of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great golden head of the statue in his vision. He said that that was all given to him by God. The most high God, my God, the God that I serve. And then, when that golden head got too big for its britches, God brought him down. And he drove him mad, off into the wilderness to become like a beast that eats grass with the wild animals. If you were here on Wednesday, you heard more about that story of the beast. And he says, he brought him down so that he might learn who is truly king. And now you, Belshazzar, have done the same thing your father did, only worse. Not only have you not humbled yourself before the God of heaven and earth, but you've done this in spite of knowing the history of this God. In knowing the context, you knew what God did to your father, King Nebuchadnezzar. You knew the acts of his power and his wonders and the humbling that he caused to your father, and yet you've continued in the same pride and arrogance. You've desecrated God's holy temple by bringing his goblets out and making it him a part of your pagan feast and drawing in his name and his people, and his sacred things into your corruption, sin, and unbelief. You've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which can't see, which can't hear, which can't know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose hand are all your ways you have not honored. And so he interprets the writing on the wall. With all of this in mind, the context of this whole story, he then reads, Mini, mini, tekel, parson. Four words. Now in Hebrew, it might have been all strung together in one long sentence, no vowels, no spaces. And the kings and his men couldn't read it because it was written in Hebrew, not Aramaic. 
and he reads the words and he interprets them. Now, the words on their own really don't say much of anything that would make sense to us. The words are measures of money. Mina is the greatest measure of money. A minus was worth 50 shekels, a good amount of money. So two minus, 100 shekels. Then the next word, tekel, is a shortened form of shekel, a coin. And then the last word, parson, is a half shekel. And it's in the plural, so it's showing that that shekel is divided into two shekels, two half shekels. So you have 50 shekels, one shekel, two half shekels, from greater to least. Now, as Daniel unpacks the meaning of this, he shows these aren't just symbols of your riches being diminished, but of your whole kingdom being diminished. He says, Mina is actually meaning a verb. Your days are numbered. Tekel as a verb means you've been weighed. And parson as a verb means you've been divided. Half shekel, half shekel. And so putting these nouns into verbs, it makes a sentence. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom has been weighed and it's out of balance. And so your kingdom shall be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Your days are numbered. Finds its origin in this story with the writing on the wall, meaning that Belshazzar, that very night, will be killed. And sure enough, supposedly, it could even be the, the historical setting of the Medes. I just found this out yesterday or two days ago. Uh, that the Medes blocked up their river with great big stones, one after another, all day long, all night long, secretly. And at dawn, they had gotten the river down to a trickle so they could crawl through that one river canal into the city. And they stormed them all and took down the king of Babylon. Why is it that some people can't read the writing on the wall? And can we read the writing on the wall? There's a song by Simon and Garfunkel that says, The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. This was written you know, 60 years ago or more. But I still hear the echo of those words. The words of the prophet are written on the subway walls. You know, graffiti is a form of self-expression, sometimes even considered art, but also public violation. There's something about graffiti that is expressing a voice that isn't being heard, a voice that can't get into the mainstream or into the press. And so it made me think of a movie that our families watched called Into the Spider-Verse. And if any of you are familiar with the Marvel series of Spider-Man, the latest series of Spider-Man movies is picturing a young black boy who ends up being the next Spider-Man. 
He's the new Spider-Man, and he's growing up in Brooklyn with fairly responsible parents, but he's kind of displaced, and he's having a bit of a rebellious side. He finds his uncle, who is the rebellious uncle, you know, the uncle that your parents don't ever want you to go visit, and his uncle takes him down to an abandoned subway. And in the abandoned subway station, you see this scene where he brings out a bag full of spray paint. And Miles Morales, that's the name of the young boy, starts spray painting over the subway walls. At the end of the scene, it shows a picture that he's created of himself in a black silhouette. And behind it in rainbow colors is the phrase, no expectations. What is Miles trying to express? What are the writers of the movie trying to express? In fact, they're playing off of an earlier reference in the movie to a book report that Miles was given on the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations. They're playing off that earlier story of a rich boy in Charles Dickens' story who has these great expectations but basically is let down in every way. And so in this story of a young boy in Brooklyn, he simply writes, no expectations. What does it mean to read the writing on the wall of the lives of people around us and what's going on in people's individual lives, what they are struggling with, what they are suffering from, what God is trying to do to help and rescue the lost and oppressed people while also humbling the proud and mighty. There's many reasons people cannot read the writing. Like King Belshazzar, one reason is we could be consumed by idolatry. We could be consumed by consumption. The consumer mindset of our society, our lives from little on up, that we deserve something better, that we should get what we want right away without having to wait, and that there's no end to the possibility of things we could do and we deserve to have in our lives. Like King Belshazzar, we can lift up all the golden goblets and forget that it was the Lord that put that golden goblet in our hands. Or we could be blinded by arrogance and simply see our lives as nothing more than a meaningless pattern or perhaps something that we've devised by our choices, that we are in control of our destinies, that the good choices we've made or the bad are all dependent on us and there's no one else that we can rely on. Or like Belshazzar, We simply are empty inside, and we've looked for all the different resources and wisdom in the world to give us guidance, give us answers. We've called in the wise men and said, what does it all mean? We're terrified and filled with dread because we're so empty inside. And they say, that's one question I can't answer. In that song by Simon and Garfunkel, 
it was later on that Garfunkel talked about it and he said it's really a song about people who have the inability to communicate. It's called The Sound of Silence. And as you listen to the song, it starts to picture the world and the crowds around this young man as zombies. He says, in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. People talking without speaking. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never shared. And no one dared disturb the sound of silence. I didn't even know if Garfunkel or Simon knew what they were really writing to the full extent, but it does strike me as kind of ironic that some 40 years later, uh, some 40 years before smartphones were ever invented, that Simon would pen the words, the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made in the sound of silence. All these people wandering around in their crowds with these neon gods that they're bowing down to and they can't talk to each other. People are talking without speaking. People are listening without hearing. That's the sound of silence. And so when the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and they say no expectations and a young man is just kind of lost in it all, are any of us interpreting it? Are any of us listening? But the message of Daniel changes all that. He shows us that we can understand what God is doing. We can understand the, the words that are written on the wall because we understand the context. There's always context to these stories, these movies, our lives. And it's the context of God's involvement. The God who intervened with great King Nebuchadnezzar at one point needing king, the king to become like a beast before he could learn to be a man. At another part of the story, God going the other direction and taking the lonely exile Israelites like Daniel and bringing them from the lowest position up to the highest position to even know the outcome of King Belshazzar's life. Whether it's bringing you down because you're too high or bringing you up because you're feeling too low, God is always bringing us back into balance with him. You see, the message of Daniel is that even if the days of our earthly kingdoms are numbered, even if, the weight of our lives are hanging in the balance and we are insufficient. Even if all that we think is important in this life, including the neon gods that we've made, are divided and taken away from us, God still has got this. You see, written on the pages right in front of us are the answers. Written on these pages is the true message of a king whose days were numbered <clears throat> because Jesus' days were numbered. From the minute that Jesus was conceived into this world, there was a clock ticking. 
His days were numbered. And he stepped into the fallen world we live in to bear the load of King Nebuchadnezzar's choices and sins, to bear the load of Belshazzar's pride and idolatry, to bear the burden of our own insufficiencies. And when he was on the cross, the time ran out. And God judged Jesus, the true king, for all that we've done wrong. And because he judged him and not us, he restored for us great expectations. A kingdom that will never fade away. A resurrection power and hope that leads even beyond death. Yes, there are great expectations for us, but you have to pay attention. And so I'd like to urge you to read the writing on the wall. And what I mean by that is to read the writing on the whiteboard when we're having Bible class. Read the message printed in the bulletin when you come to church. Read the scriptures that we're going to be considering this week, next week, the week after. Reflect on what you've heard when you leave here. What is God saying to you? Because he's writing messages in the Bible, in the bulletin, on the whiteboard, in our conversations and prayers with each other. He is always trying to tell you something. And what he tells King Belshazzar is, listen, before it's too late. You already knew what I did to King Nebuchadnezzar, and that could happen to any one of us. Where we're brought down because we're not listening. So with humility, number your days, and then you can see it the way that Marcus Aurelius saw it. When he said number your days, he said to open your, the windows of your soul to the sun. Open up your heart. Stop trying to hide it away and pretend that you've got this all figured out. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to claim that it's only dependent on you and there's no one else to be consulted. Open the windows of your soul before the sun sets and God will show you. He's got great expectations for you. Amen.